Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that because of Christ Jesus, we can come to you. And we look at the things we've just sung about that we leave behind, that we come from. And we consider, God, what we come to. And we wonder why we would wait so long. We wonder why sometimes we're so slow paced. God, we pray that you would give us grace to run hard after Christ. And that you would fill our hearts with gladness because of the joys of knowing him. Not just the the benefits that come as wonderful as they are, but him. God, make our hearts to, to be ablaze with love to Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sin, the appeasement of your wrath, the cleansing of the stain of our sin, and all that you've done to make it possible by him to bring us to yourself. God, help us again tonight as we look at another of these offerings and how they foreshadow what Christ would accomplish. God, we pray that you would teach us and that we would appreciate more and be more, it would be grateful for the willingness of Christ to go to the cross on our behalf and for the accomplishment that he has finished now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we ask God for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Leviticus 4 tonight. Leviticus chapter 4. Before I read, do you remember the names of the three offerings that we've looked at so far? Like, get out a pencil and a piece of paper. Sorry. Peace offering? Burnt offering? That's where we're going tonight. The grain offering. Yeah. All right. In the grain offering, a word is used that, um, that means tribute. We talked about that a bit. What, what is a tribute? Sir? An agreement? That would be a, a um, covenant. But when you pay tribute to someone, what's the idea? You honor them? What else? You're recognizing authority, aren't you? So kind of subservience? Um, in Leviticus, the word sacrifice first appears in reference to the peace offering, which we looked at last week. Do you remember what was included in the idea of sacrifice that made it peculiar It's okay. There are two things really. One, it is related to the word for slaughter. In other contexts, outside of, of the sacrificial system, it's, it's the general word for slaughter. If you were at the butcher's market or the, the processing plant and they slaughter the animal, that's the same word. The other thing, though, was 
it's only used in reference to this. These I keep saying the word sacrifice, but it's only used in word, reference to the offerings when it is uh, part of an animal that you consume. So a part of an offering that you consume, like the peace offering. Um, a portion of it was burned as if the Lord were receiving that portion and then the priest ate a portion and the rest of it was given back to you and there was a big meal. These first three offerings have a few things in common. One, the offerings that we're looking at right now as they're described here are described as personal offerings. They're attached to other things that weren't personal. So the the burnt offering described in chapter 1 is described as the personal offering that you would bring. But the burnt offering was also burnt morning and night by the priest. And that was kind of a collective offering. It was, it was corporate. Um, the, the grain offering, there were feasts in which those were required. But here it's a voluntary offering, primarily described. Same thing with the burnt offering. And with the peace offering, though again there was a feast, one feast at which the peace offering was required. But these are primarily described as voluntary personal offerings. Um, chapter 4 is going to be a bit different in that regard. I told you in, I think, in the introduction to Leviticus that the first half of the book describes how we approach God. If, if we understand that, if we look at it that way, then the first three of these offerings we might consider as how to approach God when we are in fellowship with Him. So the ground's kind of already been cleared for us to come. Even though there are elements that portray atonement or substitution, we see those things, those sacrifices were primarily um, offerings from love. They're voluntary. Whenever you want to come and bring this offering, they're gratitude. It's a, a picture of wholehearted devotion. The last two of these five personal sacrifices are different. The sin offering and the guilt offering both describe aspects of approaching God when the fellowship has been, bro- has been broken. If you've sinned in this way, then here's what you do. This chapter, chapter 4, is, as I said, laid out differently than the previous three chapters. Chapter 4 specifically addresses the sin offerings of four different entities. The high priest or, or the priest... The, the people collectively. So if, if the entire congregation sins, and then a leader, which appears to be a, like a civic leader, because it is separate from the priest, and then the common person, a person who's not a leader or a priest. And so it addresses those four different entities. We're actually going to read from verse 1 of chapter 4 down through verse uh, 13 of chapter 5. Chapter 5 continues speaking of the sin offering. And there seems to be some overlap with what comes after with the guilt offering. But he does address um, a number of things that apply specifically to the sin offering. So we'll read down through verse 13 of chapter 5. Beginning in chapter 4 then. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. A quick note here. So not as 
not just like a personal offense, something that he's done that would not affect the entire congregation, but in his role as a priest, in a way that would affect the congregation. You'll notice verse 3 there. If he sins so as to bring guilt on the people. Verse 4. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest is to offer them up in smoke on the altar of burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is all the rest of the bull, he is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out and burn it on the wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. Now if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and they become guilty when... When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the Lord shall pardon me, and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. He shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove all its fat from it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. He shall also do with the bull just as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. Then he is to bring out the bull to a place outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins and unintentionally does Any one of all the things which the Lord his God has commanded not to be done, and he becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a male without defect. He shall lay his hand on the head of the male goat and slay it in the place where they slay the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, 
and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. All its fat he shall offer up in smoke on the altar as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin and he will be forgiven. Now if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect, for his sin which he has committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and all the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. Then he shall remove all its fat just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings and the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he'll be forgiven. But if he brings a lamb As his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring it, a female without defect. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay it for a sin offering in the place where they slay the burnt offering. The priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and all the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. Then he shall remove all its fat just as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offerings, and the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar, on the offerings by fire to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, which he has committed, and he'll be forgiven. You'll pause right there for just a moment. You'll notice that as he uh, speaks to the, the sins of the common people, and you can bring the goat or the lamb there's a distinction between the goat and the lamb. We talked about this last week. Do you remember why that's divided? He doesn't reference it directly here. He just says for both of them, you do like you did the peace offering. But there was something specific in the peace offering about the lamb. It had a really fat tail. The, uh, the tails of the, goat, of the sheep in that region were broad and could weigh 40 or 50 pounds. So the Lord specifies He wants the fat that's included on the tail of the sheep that wasn't on the the tail of the goat. And so in the same way as you did with the peace offerings, he specifies here, you do that here also. And so he breaks it down again. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen it, pardon me, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he'll bear his guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean cattle or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him and he is unclean, then he'll be guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort his uncleanness may be with which he becomes unclean and it is hidden from him and then he comes to know it, he'll be guilty. Or if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, 
And then he comes to know it. He'll be guilty in one of these. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these. That he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord. For his sin which he has committed. A female from the flock. A lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first that which is for the sin offering and shall nip its head at the front of its neck, but he shall not sever it. He shall also sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. The second, he shall then prepare as a burnt offering, according to the ordinance. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed, and it will be forgiven him. But if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves, or two young pigeons, then for his offering... For that which he has sinned, he shall bring the tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it, for it is a sin offering. He shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as a memorial portion and offer it up in smoke on the altar with the offerings of the Lord by fire. It is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin which he has committed from one of these, and it will be forgiven him. Then the rest shall become the priest, like the grain offering. Well, that's a lot. I hope uh, we can cover it in a way that's clear and helpful. The first thing I'd like to uh, bring to your attention is that as these sin offerings are addressed, it's repeatedly addressed to sins that are committed unintentionally. Verse 2, if a person sins unintentionally, and then he goes on to describe how, in this case, it's the, the anointed priest. In verse 13, it is the whole congregation commits error, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly. They don't realize it. And then something happens where they do realize it, and now they're guilty. They were guilty before, but now they realize their guilt. Verse 22. When a leader sins and unintentionally does any one of all the things which the Lord has, his God has commanded not to be done, and he becomes guilty. The idea of becoming guilty again is discovered to him. He, he realizes, I did that. And then in verse 27, we see it again. If anyone of the common people sins unintentionally. So... Again, with each of these entities, these categories, it's pointed out that the sin is an unintentional sin. One of the reasons I believe that the Bible makes this point, that this is an offering that covers unintentional sins, is because it does highlight for us how easily we act in ways that displeases the Lord. It's not just the things that we know we do, that we choose to do, but there are things that we do and we don't even realize that we've done them. It escapes our notice. We're ignorant of the fact that it occurred. 
And it, we find out later, and it's like, ah, you know, I, I didn't know that was wrong, maybe. I didn't know that was one of God's laws. Or I didn't realize I said that thing. Uh, there's a number of ways that, that could occur. We'll look at some of those in a moment. But unintentional sin. I think it is the very thing that David speaks of in Psalm 19, 12, when he says, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Those things I don't even know that I've done. God acquit me. Andrew Bonar, speaking on this, said, We have a heart as prone to sin as the body is to weariness. How easily do you get tired? Well, the older you get, the easier it becomes, doesn't it? Even easier than that to sin. And maybe not even realize you've done it. Well, how could you sin unintentionally? It could be accidental. You do something accidentally, but it does hurt someone else. Or it, it, you, know, you break a law, you didn't realize you've done it, and you're now guilty. It could be a deliberate act, though, that you don't realize is wrong at the time that you've done it. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, give four illustrations. I'm sure there are many others, but God does give us these four. In verse 1, if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he'll bear his guilt. There's some discussion about exactly what this means. There's translation questions. But I think the idea is basically a failure to appear. So there's a call to come to court and speak. You know something and you don't. And the idea seems to be not just that you deliberately decide, I don't want to say anything, I don't want to get involved, but maybe you've, you, know, you forgot the court date or something happened and you didn't show up when you were supposed to. And when you realize that you're already guilty, you didn't show up. But then you realize that you didn't show up. And you are guilty. And you bear the guilt of that. And part of the guilt of that is there's a sin offering that needs to be paid. Because you didn't do what you should have done. Another, in verse 2, is if you touch any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean cattle, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it's hidden from him and he's unclean, then he'll be guilty. So you touch a dead animal. Or perhaps you touch something that the dead animal has just recently touched. And touching that, you've become unclean. And you're guilty. You didn't intentionally touch the dead animal, but, but you did. S- similar to that is... Verse 3, if you touch human uncleanness, and this could take a number of different, um, it could be a number of different things. It could be someone who's sick with leprosy, and you didn't realize it. It could be, um, there, there's one example in Leviticus that speaks of sitting in a chair that a dead person, or, or that a, a sick person, a leprous person had sat in. So an unclean person was sitting there, they got up and walked off. You didn't realize they'd sat there. You came and sat there. You're unclean. And then someone tells you, so-and-so was just sitting there. And you, oh, you know, now you know. The fourth example that is given in verse 4 
is of a thoughtless oath or a rash oath. You say things without really thinking or maybe in the heat of a moment. The same word is used of Moses when he strikes the rock and he speaks about Israel. The same word is used there. He speaks rashly, thoughtlessly. Just because you say something thoughtlessly does not mean that the oath doesn't count. And when you realize perhaps that you cannot do the thing you said you would do, your guilt is on you. And you need to bring a sin offering. Now, those are the examples that are given here. Uh, the, the failure to appear could be something that we could relate to. You might get a, some kind of a summons to appear in a court setting, maybe even as a juror, and you forget and you don't show up. Well, you're guilty. You're wrong. And it wasn't intentional. It's not like you decided, I just, I'm just not going to show up. You just you didn't make it. Well, there's some answers to be given, aren't there? Um, it could also be something, though, like a mathematical error. You're doing your taxes and your math is just wrong. It's not like you're trying to defraud the government. You just didn't do your math right. And so the numbers you've come up with are incorrect. Or if, you, if someone you know, has bought something from you, you're trying to add up the amounts and you do your math wrong and you charge them more than they were supposed to pay. It wasn't intentional, but you're still guilty of taking more than you were supposed to. You've overcharged them. So... Those are a couple of kind of modern examples, I suppose, of how we could accidentally sin against someone and against the Lord without intention. Numbers chapter 6 provides another hypothetical. Numbers chapter 6 describes a person who takes the vow of a Nazarite. Number six, beginning in verse one. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father. You see the picture here. Your father dies. But you've committed yourself to the Lord in this. You've made these vows of a Nazarite. You don't get to make yourself unclean by going near to your father who's passed away. Or you don't um, defile yourself for your mother, for his brother, or for his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. 
Now the hypothetical, verse 9. But if a man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his dedicated head of hair, then he shall shave his head on the day when he becomes clean. He shall shave it on the seventh day. See, you see the picture. You're sitting beside someone having a conversation, and suddenly they die. Well, you just defiled yourself, and there's no avoiding it. What do you do? Well, there are certain things you had to do to become clean, and when he did, he shaved his head, and keep reading. He has to offer an offering, a sin offering, and he begins his vow over again. You don't get to pick up from where you left off. If you're on the next to last day, you start over, and you complete that clean to the Lord. So there were a number of ways that you could sin unintentionally. And I think this teaches us a number of things. It does, I believe, highlight that we are by nature a sinful, unclean people. And it's inevitable. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're guilty before God. There's just no getting away from it. You may not know you're guilty. You may not feel guilty. But if you've broken God's law, you're guilty. We can be ignorant of aspects of the law. Ignorant of what God desires in a situation. And, and you know, offend Him. And we're guilty, even though we didn't realize what we were doing. It could be, though, we have a, a conscience that is hardened, seared. And there are things that we do and, and we don't feel particularly guilty about them. Or maybe we, our conscience just isn't very informed and we don't feel guilty. But it doesn't absolve the fact that we are guilty. The guilt goes beyond our knowledge and it goes beyond our feelings. There's an objective standard by which we are judged. And we are guilty if we've broken that law. And the only hope for that guilt is the blood of Christ. Sin is the transgression of the law. And ignorance of that is no excuse. If you're driving down the highway and the speed limit's posted at one thing and it changes and you don't realize it and you get pulled over, you can say, I didn't see the sign. You can say, I didn't know, but unless... You know, the guy that pulls you over just is really gracious. Ignorance isn't an excuse, is it? There is a section, or there used to be, I don't know if it's still there, on Church Road. We would cut off through there going to my in-laws. There was a section on Church Road. It seemed like every two-tenths of a mile or so, they changed the speed limit. And I can't think of any reason why, except they wanted to catch you. And so it'd be 50, then 45, then 50, then 45, and just back and forth. And... Um, some days, you know, you'd see, you drive through there trying to keep up with what it said and people just zooming past you. And other days, you might see a, a line of police officers pulling people over and um, the fact that you missed one of those signs didn't do any good. That explanation didn't do any good. In Second Kings... Chapter 22, after some wicked kings, we find in 2 Kings 22 that Josiah becomes king. 
And after some time as you know, being king, the high priest found the book of the law. He began reading it. He brought it to the king. Verse 10 says, Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Verse 13. Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. As the words had been forgotten, the people continue in sin. There were people who chose rebellion. Others have kind of grown up in it. And now they're suddenly realizing, we, well, we've departed a long way. But for them, it's a kind of ignorance. But now they're realizing, that's what the law says. And we're guilty. In verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. In chapter 23, he begins to make a number of reforms, trying to you know, repent to, to bring the nation back to where it should be in line with the words of that book. Our problem, though, is not only ignorance, sometimes it is the sin of carelessness, like the example we see in chapter 5 of, of the person swearing thoughtlessly, a careless oath. While we may be ignorant or careless, again, God's law is not arbitrary. He's not like a, a person who's constantly changing, you know, moving the goal line. Today he's happy with this. Tomorrow he's happy with this. It's not that. God's law is objective. His standard is objective. It is that there's a problem with us. Well, sin is not only the transgression of the law. It's also a pollutant. It defiles Sometimes what we know is the sin offering was required when a person had not actually you know, gone and done something against the law as far as like trying to... It was not a, an overt action as we've seen with some of the, the cases of becoming unclean. In Leviticus chapter 12, the Bible describes how after a woman has given birth, she is to bring a sin offering. Luke chapter 2 says that when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they, Mary and Joseph, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. 
every firstborn that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they're, they're bringing this sacrifice, this offering is required because there's uncleanness now. The Hebrew word translated sin offering can, you could also translate it as uh, removal of sin, but you could also translate it as decontamination, or it's the idea of, of purification. And because of that, and because some of these um, issues are related to cleanliness versus uncleanliness, some people think that the offering should be called the purification offering rather than the sin offering. But there is still, in many of this, in much of this, uh, the transgression of the law. And so sin offering, I think, is also appropriate. But the idea of purification is definitely here. It's not just the issue of the fact that, that there's a guilt that's yours. There's also a, a stain that resides upon you because you are a sinful being. The stain of, of who you are born under Adam abides upon you. And the stain of your choices abides upon you. The Israelites faced the problem of being unholy, but they also faced the problem of being unclean. And being unclean, they could not come into the presence of a clean, holy God. Before they could come there, they had to be clean. Not only were they themselves defiled, but... They were like little contagions. They, they defiled the things around them when they were defiled. Like the guy who's unclean and sits in a chair. Now the chair is unclean. And so we saw in chapter 5 verses 2 and 3. Touching the unclean animal. The dead animal. It's unclean. Now you're unclean. Or here's the person who's unclean. Whatever sort, you've touched him. Now you're unclean. There was the potential not only to defile the things around you. You could bring that into your house and everyone in the house becomes unclean. But you could also defile the holy things of the Lord. A quick example, on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16 describes this, and we'll get there later. But um, on the Day of Atonement, there was one particular sin offering, and its purpose was to cleanse the tabernacle. Because it could become defiled by the sins of the people, and so annually, it's cleansed. Sin is a pollutant. But what we see with all these cleanliness laws is that the, the death, the disease, the decay that comes as a consequence of sin are also pollutants. They defile. God demands cleanliness. So there's the pollution caused by moral guilt and there's also the pollution associated with the consequences of the fall. And both serve as a constant reminder that we are a defiled people desiring to 
appear before a God who is holy. Both are a constant reminder that we are a people who need to have sins propitiated for, God's wrath appeased, but also that we need to be cleaned up. We need that stain removed, the defilement removed. And God provides for both of those. Now, another thing here, third, the equity of God's law. A few things here. One, I mentioned that these offerings don't, they address unintentional sin. These offerings don't address intentional sin or rebellion, acts of rebellion. You might wonder, where's the chapter that governs that? It's not in these first chapters of Leviticus. The Old Testament, though, does have something to say about these intentional sins. Numbers chapter 15 speaks to this. Numbers 15 is addressing the law of the sojourner. Basically, there's not two different laws for different people if they're in Israel. If if you are an Israelite or if you are a person, an alien who decides to live in Israel, same law applies to both of you. There's not two laws. But as it describes that, it, it says this, chapter 15, verse 28. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Pretty shocking. Not, um, it should make anyone who fears the Lord take notice and beware that you seek to observe the things that God has said in His Word. There were sins that were committed that resulted in immediate judgment. There wasn't a trip to Jerusalem and the altar first. In fact, Numbers 15, the very next passage, the very next few verses give an example. Verse 32. Now while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And so they take him outside the camp and they stone him. We also see with these with the sin offering and looking at these different entities that there are unequal consequences. If you, I I tried to point out that there are these different categories of people or of entities. Um, Verse 3, there's the priest. Verse 13, the whole congregation. 
And by the way, as, as we see the whole congregation, there's the issue of, of corporate guilt. The entire um, congregation could become guilty unintentionally. Can you think of an example? I'm putting you on the spot, but one quick example is the Gibeonites as they're going into the land. Joshua and the people have, have gone into the land, they've begun to take it, and the Gibeonites decide we don't want to be crushed by them, and so they disguise themselves as people from a long distance. They come to Joshua and the, the people of Israel and they say, We've come from a long way off. Here's our clothes, they're ratty, you know, and the food's crumbly, and, and it was fresh when we left, and they just they they deceive them. And the result is that Joshua and the leaders of Israel make a covenant with the Gibeonites when God has said, don't do that. And it's three days later, they discover we've been deceived. Now, what do we do? Well, they did what God said, don't do. They made a covenant with the people in the land, but they made a covenant. And so they keep the covenant. And the Gibeonites become servants to the Israelites in the land, hewers of wood, but they keep the covenant. Later in 2 Samuel 21, there's a famine. David's king, and the problem is that Saul has broken that covenant with the Gibeonites. And in chapter 21 and verse 3, David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? And how can I make atonement that you may... Bless the inheritance of the Lord. There was guilt on the entire congregation because of this foolish decision made by the leaders. Joshua, the book of Joshua specifically says they did not ask God. They didn't inquire. And so they make a foolish decision and they're bound by it. Well, there are several areas of consequence here and these unequal consequences let me mention those and I'll wrap up for tonight because I see our time's almost gone. And I got a lot more to say. So, um, first, there was a more costly sacrifice depending upon who you were or what position you held as you sinned. Verse 28, if a common person sinned, they were to bring a female goat. But if a leader, a secular leader, or, or you know, a leader who's not a priest, if he sinned, he brings a male goat. In verse 14, if the whole congregation sins, or verse 3, if the priest sins, they were to bring a bull. And the bull cost considerably more than the goat or the sheep. And because they were in positions to influence, the priest was in positions to influence people or to lead them astray spiritually to their detriment, the people's detriment, a more costly sacrifice was demanded. It was also a more intricate procedure. Verses 27 through 31 describes how, uh, if a common person sinned, how the procedure was to go. And it's very similar to if a leader sins. So the sacrifice is brought, you put your hand on the head of the animal, the animal is killed, the blood is collected, and the blood is put on the horns of the altar, and the rest is poured out at the base of the altar. The animal is burned, except for a portion that goes to the priest. That's in short. So the, the fat is burned. The rest of the animal goes to the priest. But for 
the entire congregation or for the priest, something different occurred. If the priest sinned or the congregation sinned, then that bull would be slaughtered and the blood would be collected and taken into the holy place. And the priest would take it up to the veil of the holy place and sprinkle it before the veil seven times. And then the blood would be applied to the horns of the golden altar, the altar of intercession that's inside of the holy place. And only after that does he bring the blood back outside and it's applied at the burnt altar, the altar of of burnt sacrifices. And before he deals with the sacrifice at the, the bronzed altar, he first has to go into the holy place. And the picture seems to be this. By his actions, he, the priest serves in the tabernacle. And by his actions, he has defiled the holy place. And before he can deal with the burnt offering at the bronzed altar, where it's being burnt, he first has to go and that area has to be cleansed. So he goes there first and he cries out to the Lord. He goes up to the veil, but he doesn't go past that because he can't. He gets as close to the mercy seat as he can. But it's not the day of atonement, so he can't go inside. And he sprinkles blood there and cries out to God. And the idea is, as he sprinkles seven times, there's this picture of complete sacrifice, a complete forgiveness as, as he cries out to God and the cry goes up from the mercy seat. But then also the blood's applied to the horns of the golden altar, the altar of, in, of intercession or of incense. And there the incense burning you know, goes up in smoke. And as the prayers of the people or the prayers of the priests in this incident are added and the praises of the people or the priests are added, they're pictured as going up in this incense. And the horns are symbols of power and blood's applied there. And the, the picture is, is, you know, he, he prays and the smoke rises through these horns. Here's a, a picture of strength, of power in this prayer and in the sacrifice that's being made for forgiveness. And he comes back out and, and completes the sacrifice. Burning the portions that he's supposed to burn on the altar. The smoke goes up from there also. And... Um, Atonement is made. Only the priests could apply the blood of the sacrifices to the areas that needed cleansing, cleansing, especially in the tabernacle itself or later in the temple. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 21 through 26 describe how Christ Jesus, our high priest, entered the real holy place. Heaven itself. And there he purified the heavenly things with his own blood. Were it not for Christ and his atoning blood, our sins would pollute heaven itself. But Christ enters there and he cleanses it with his blood. Also, as the priest brings a bull to offer for his sin... 
he is in a sense you know, preaching to the people who are watching. What would it say to the congregation if the priest seeking for forgiveness of sins brought the two turtle doves? When a bull is required. Well, sin doesn't look that serious. I mean, if it's all you can afford, God has provided for that. But God calls here for the bull. Here's the most costly of the sacrifices that God demands. And he has sinned in a way that's public. And he sinned in a way that affects the, the people. And so what's required is, is the most expensive of gifts. There's one other distinction with both of these sacrifices for both the priest and for the entire congregation. And that is once the fat has been offered on the altar and has been burnt, the rest of the animal is to be taken outside the camp to the ash heap where the ashes of all the other sacrifices are carried out. It's a place designated. It's a clean place. But it is a place outside the camp. And there it's to be burnt with the other sacrifices of, of the leader, of the common person, the priest received a portion and he ate it. But with these two, whether he had sinned himself or the entire congregation of which he's a part, he's not to benefit from that. And so he does not receive a portion of it. Leviticus chapter 6 speaks to this in verse 24. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his son saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. Anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated. And when any of its blood splashes on a garment... In a holy place you shall wash what was splashed on. Also the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken. And if it was boiled in a bronze vessel, then it shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. So that's the distinction. If you bring it into the holy place, into the tabernacle or the temple, you don't eat that. It goes outside the camp to be burned. If you don't bring it in, then the priest ate a portion of it. The writer of Hebrews draws our attention to the fact that Christ Jesus died outside the camp. The cross of Jesus is described as the altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Why? Because he brought his blood into the holy place and sprinkled it there. Verse 11 goes on, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. 